Okay? I'm glad you're here. Um, Yom Kippur is fast coming up, and there's a topic that I think is very central to understanding the, the whole nature of um, what Yom Kippur is all about, the essence of Yom Kippur, and also, uh, on a very, very deep level, what it means to be a human being and what it means to live with God and what the nature of both forgiveness is and what the nature of hate is. Hate is Hebrew for um, the English word sin. I don't like the word sin. That's an English word with all sorts of uh, kind of um, alien uh, connotations, um, which aren't uh, Jewish, basically. So, so hate is a, is a much better word. Hate actually means to miss. And the way I heard Rabbi Aaron explain it, what the nature of hate is, the, the, the sort of the, the energy dynamics of it, if you will, are a person at a particular moment either did too much or they did too little. Right? So that's, that's what it is. You want to be in sync and you want to balance. If you are doing the appropriate action at the appropriate time, then you're in mitzvah mode. You're in connection. The, the root of the word mitzvah is, is the word connect. All the mitzvot, which, unfortunately, another unfortunate English word, uh, commandments, which gives you the image of God as a slave driver, commanding you constantly, unfortunately, also an English word, also with all sorts of alien theological connotations that, that aren't Jewish. Mitzvah means to connect. So what God has given us is a recipe, a formula, for how to connect in every area of our life at all times. And this is why, again, this is a, a fundamental disconnect with most people and, their, and the understanding of the Torah approach to life. When people begin to get interested in in Judaism or in Torah, whatever it is, they all of a sudden like encounter this whole concept of mitzvot, and it's like, I got to do this, and I got to do that, and I got to do this, and I can't do that, and I can't do this, and I can't do that, and it's so overwhelming, and, and people don't understand what the idea is. The idea is that God is absolutely everywhere. God loves you, and God is absolutely everywhere and in everything, and because wherever you go, whatever you do, whether you're in the most important sort of life cycle moment, you've just had a child, you're about to get married, a person after 120 is about to leave this world and go up to the next realm, whatever it is, whatever life cycle moment you're at, you think, okay, that's when we should have a mitzvah. <laughs> that's when we should have a mitzvah. But wait a second. Who's keeping the world going every single nanosecond? Who's keeping you alive every single nanosecond? Who's allowing your brain to function, your, your lungs to breathe every single nanosecond? God is, which means that you're standing before God, not just when you're about to have your bar mitzvah or your child is about to have her bat mitzvah or, or something like that. When you've just left the bathroom, when you're about to eat a grape, you're standing before God. So therefore, there has to be, it's not that there should be, or it's nice that there is, there has to be a moment to connect to the, to the, to the divine at every single moment. And, and all the more so at the mundane moments of your life. How to put on your socks and shoes. There's a Torah way to put on your socks and shoes, right? You put your right sock and then your left sock. 
your right shoe and then your left shoe. Then you tie your left shoe, then you tie your right shoe. On the tying, it, it reverses. Not that, oh, you mean uh, uh, now there's a way that I have to tie my shoes and put on my socks? That's the opposite of that. It's the opposite of that. It's that in the mundane, and, and what percent of our lives is the quote-unquote mundane? 99% of our lives? 98% of our lives? Are you going to tell me that there's no way with 98% of our lives to connect with God? I mean, I, I would really seriously challenge a religious system of thought that doesn't have a way of addressing how you conduct 98% of your life. I, I, would have a real, I would have a real logical problem with, with a system that just says, be a good person, and you can define that any way you like. You know what I think is a good person? I think that person has too much money. So what I'm going to do is steal it and give it to poor people. Did that person earn the money? Yeah, he earned it. Did he work hard for it? Yeah, he worked hard for it. But, but in my system of thought, this is good. I'll steal from him, and I'll give it to someone else. So, you know, when you get into the idea that you get to make up whatever is good, into this morally relativistic sort of realm, then you leave the realm of objective truth. And it's very, it's very troubling. It's very troubling. So again, again, the greatness of Torah, the greatness of Torah is that it gives us a system to connect with God wherever we are with whatever we're doing. And that's the essence of the word mitzvah, which means to connect. Okay? So this is just as an introduction. Okay. Now, now this word chet, this word hate, which means to miss, again. Not, not sin, not sin, but to miss. You either did too much at that moment, or you didn't do enough at that moment. And I heard something very, very compelling from, uh, in the name of Stan Levy, who, who explains the Holocaust in one sentence. You ready? That's, that sounds like a tall order. How are you going to explain the Holocaust in one sentence? But... Here's what he said, and I think he did a pretty amazing job. He said that what happened was there were people who did what they shouldn't have done and other people who didn't do what they should have done. I'll say that again. The Holocaust in one sentence. You ready? There are people who did what they shouldn't have done and other people who didn't do what they should have done. That, that works for me. That works for me. And again, what I like about that is it's taking an enormous, almost incomprehensibly large event in human history and shrinking it down to this idea of either doing too much or too little, which is the essence of chayt. And so again, what we're trying to do is put ourselves in sync with God, in sync with the universe, and that's what... Yom Kippur is coming to address the nature of when we get it wrong. Right? And then, the question arises, well, if I did it wrong, how, how does God make it right? What is the agency? How does forgiveness, how does atonement, how does the essence of Yom Kippur actually work? So that's our topic for today. 
how does Yom Kippur actually work? Okay? And we're going to get into sort of like the divine mechanics of it. And in order to do that, I'm going to zero in on one essential point. Actually, two points. And we're going to look very deeply into these concepts. God will. The first is to focus in on what the highlight of the service of the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, was on Yom Kippur in the Holy Temple. And the answer is, the highlight of his service was to go into the Holy of Holies, the Kodesh Kedoshim. Now remember, this was a part of the Holy Temple of the Beis HaMikdash that no one was allowed into, except the Kohen Gadol, and only once a year. So this is the holiest person in the world going into the holiest space in the world on the holiest day of the year. Alright? That's not just... By the way, that's not just a, a nice bit of phraseology that, that I said. That's from the Sefer Yetzirah. Okay? Which boils down all of reality into three fundamental components. Shana, Makum, and Nefesh. Time, space, and soul. So we have the holiest day of the year, that's time, that's Yom Kippur. The holiest place of the year, Makom, that's the Holy of Holies. And the holiest person of the year, uh, uh, in, in the world, that's Nefesh, that's the Kohen Gadol, all converging at the same place. So now you say, okay, so you've got this unbelievable confluence of Kedusha, of holiness, all focused and happening at the same time. Now what? Right? So, good question, right? So this is, you can see, the pinnacle, the pinnacle of the year in terms of holiness. Now what? The answer is Ketoros. Ketoros means incense. That's what, that's, that's what the high priest would do, the Kohen Gadol would do. He would bring the incense offering at that moment in the Holy of Holies, and it would smoke up until the smoke from the incense filled the entire Holy of Holies. Okay? And he would say a prayer, and that would be, that would be it. Alright? So, so, why Ketoros? Why incense? You see from this that incense is the pinnacle of the entire thing, and that therefore it has to, if we look deeply into it, reveal something absolutely essential about the nature of Yom Kippur and about the nature of forgiveness itself. So let's look deeply into incense and why that holds the key to understanding the nature of forgiveness and Yom Kippur itself. And to begin the discussion, what I would like to do is look at the word itself, the word Ketorah, again, that means incense, the word Ketorah itself and to try to unravel or decode, if you will, a very amazing um, piece of Torah from the Balaturim. So the Balaturim was a, one of our greatest rabbis. From a, he's a Rishon from about a thousand years ago. And his commentary is included in the Mikros Gedolos, among the greatest sages with the Ramban and, the, and Rashi and Ankylos and... You know, the, he's, he's among the greatest of the great, the Balaturim. 
and everyone holds by him. And his specialty actually is, well, I don't want to reduce his specialty, but, but one of the amazing things about his commentary is he brings very, very deep gematrias. And this particular gematria on the word Ketoros that he brings is actually, to me, astounding. And I've referenced it before because, to me, the methodology behind this particular gematria is so amazing. So, so again, just so we know where we're at right now, what we're trying to do since the incense offering was the highlight of the Yom Kippur service is to look into the nature of incense itself to try to understand how that reflects on Yom Kippur. And now we're going to zero in on the word as explained by the Balaturim. Okay. So the Balaturim points out something very interesting. He says, if you take the gematria of the word Ketores, but with one exception, don't just assign a numerical value to each of the letters. And remember, the holiness of gematria is that the Torah is functioning on so many different levels. Remember, what is the Torah? The Torah is the infinite compressed into the finite. That's why it's endless. It's the infinite compressed into the finite, which is why it's operating on so many different levels. Among those levels, and you'll see a couple of them employed in this particular exegesis of the word Ketoris, by the Baal among them is mathematical, because there's math is also one of the divine languages. You know, if you look at what physicists have done in terms of describing the universe in terms of math, it's all Torah. All of this is Torah. And so, gematria, you know, sometimes it's translated as numerology. Numerology, I'm thinking of like a kook with a conical hat, and like a, a robe, you know, like, like that to me is numerology. This is not numerology, this is gematria, this is, this is holy, this is one of the divine languages, so... Keep that in mind, please, so that you prize the distinction. Another form of gematria, so, so the first step is, the Balaturim says, take the gematria of the word ketoris. But, but before you do that, take one of the letters, the kuf of ketoris, and through the system of exchanging letters, known as Atbash, change the Kuf into its Atbash um, correspondent letter, which is Dalit. Alright, now let me just take one moment to explain what Atbash is. Atbash is another system of Gematria that the Gomorrah itself, the Gomorrah itself in Mesechta Shabbos, Daf Kuf Dalit, brings forth. Okay? What Akbash is, is there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. If you make a line of the letters, meaning to say, you start with the letter Aleph, and you divide the alphabet into two lines. So if there are 22 letters, you'll have 11 on the top line, and immediately underneath, put the next 11 letters, and then you have 11 and 11. And so now what you can do is, you can exchange the top letter with the bottom letter, or the bottom letter with the top letter, and that will give you a divine porthole 
into understanding different levels within words themselves. Because remember, if the Torah itself is infinite, then you can access that, infini- that infinity through certain divinely ordered pathways. One of them is mathematics. Another one is a system called Atbash. Now, very interestingly, one time I was driving in my car and I was really trying to think deeply about the nature of Atbash and this amazing system, actually, and I realized that it's on page Kuf Dalit in the Gomorrah. Kuf Dalit is an Atbash. So, I'm sure... I'm sure that's the page that Atbash is, de- is described on. And I'm sure the sages, 2,000 years ago, whatever it is, were laughing their heads off about this guy who's going to be driving in Los Angeles, you know, like realizing this. And, you know, I'm sure they found that hysterical. But anyway, Kuf Dalid are two letters because Dalid is the fourth letter, Olive Bay's Gimel Dalid, that's the fourth letter. And then if you work backwards, Tav, Shin, Resh, Kuf. It's the fourth to last letter. So you can exchange them. Do you see how that works? Okay. So now let's go back to the Balaturim's explanation of the word Ketoros. If you take the gematria of the word Ketoros, except for the letter Kuf, and exchange the letter Kuf for Dalit through the system of Atbash, the numerical total for Ketoros, incense, is 613. An amazing thing. Everybody knows there's 613 mitzvahs. So in other words, here you see that that incense somehow, and we're going to get more deeply into this in a moment, that incense is somehow accessing the totality of all of the creation, of all of the universe. And, of course, each individual person is composed of 613 parts. Because each person, on a very deep level, is a microcosm and is made out of the Torah itself. And, of course, we know in our mystical tradition, God looked into the Torah, which contains 613 mitzvahs, and made the universe. So, here you see, Ketoros equals, incense, equals 613. So, it's hinting at the whole of a person and the whole of creation. So now, we're going to try to figure out why. What's the connection between incense, forgiveness, Yom Kippur, human beings, and the sense of smell. What are all of these connections? We're going to explain all of these connections right now, God willing. And also, God willing, I'll remember to say this, I would like to perhaps offer an explanation for this unusual methodology of the Balatorum. Because normally speaking, when you do the system of Atbash, you turn the entire word around, not just one letter within the word. So why this very unique methodology being employed for this one word? Why is the Balatorum going out of his way to do this? So I'll suggest an explanation, uh, God willing, at the end. So now, 
Now, in order to understand the connection between forgiveness and the human condition and Yom Kippur, we have to go back to where we always go back, for all of our explanations, really, for the most part, back to the Garden of Eden. Because that's where it all started. That's where everything started. If you want to try to understand yourself better, your relationships better, God better, life better, the meaning of this world and existence better, all of the answers are found in the, in the study of Adam and Chava in the Garden of Eden. Everything is found there. And God willing, one day I'll write a book on this subject. Because to me, it's, it's, well, it's just the headquarters of so much. Okay, let's go into it. So the Bnei Yisachar, one of the greatest Hasidic masters, brings down from even older sources, he says, the following teaching, which was that when we ate, when Adam and Chava, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden, all of their, all of their senses, all of the five senses were damaged or corrupted, except for the sense of smell. Again, just so you're tracking the ideas here, we're getting the connection between this katoris, forgiveness, incense, right? And we're going back and we're finding out that all of the senses were damaged except for the sense of smell. So let's see how that works actually. It says that we saw the fruit and it looked great. That was the eyes. Adam listened to Chava and Chava listened to the snake. That's hearing. They touched the fruit when they ate it. That's the sense of touch. And they ate the fruit. That's the sense of taste. So you see, all of the senses were affected by this act except the sense of smell. The sense of smell is never mentioned. Very interesting. Now, to understand this on an even deeper level, I want to bring a teaching. This is a Kabbalistic teaching. And I learned this in the um, book Inner Space by Rabbi Ari Kaplan, which is a very amazing introduction, very lucid, extremely lucid, concrete introduction to Kabbalah, um, the best that I've seen. Um, and he brings among, you know, a, a myriad of teachings, this thought. On the name of God. On the Yudke Vavke. So, you know that the, the Yudke Vavke is the holiest name of God. And that it's working on so many different levels. One of them is really as a map of the universe. As a map of the cosmos. And whenever you're working with this name, Yudke Vavke, I always recommend that you spell it from the top to the bottom. Because this will allow you to see it as, as a map and an ordering of the, of the worlds, spiritually speaking. So the Yud is really the highest point of light, highest emanating source of light. Then you have the He. Then you have which is a, a vessel, and in, 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 I heard in the name of Rabbi Tzadok that vessel, because it's closest to light, stands for Olam Abba, 
Then you have the Vav. We're going to key in on the Vav in a moment, so pay careful attention to the Vav. Vav is a connector. And also it's shaped like a pipe, like drawing down energy to the bottom hay, which everyone says stands for this world, this dimension. Okay? So in other words, this Vav, and of course in Hebrew grammar, Vav is a connector letter. It means and, or, connecting two concepts. So the Vav is connecting this realm that we inhabit, this dimension of time and space and soul, to the higher dimensions. That's what the Vav is doing. Okay? And this is a way of conceiving, understanding, so to speak, a, a map of the universe which incorporates the heavens and the earth. Okay? Now listen to this. With that in mind, listen to the following. Rabbi Kaplan brings an inner space, according to Kabbalah, that on a human face, the Yud Kevavke is also spelled out. The Yud correlates with the eyes. The hay, the first hay, correlates with the ears. The vav correlates with the nose. And if you think about it, the, the, the bridge of your nose sort of does look like a vav. And then the mouth correlates with the bottom hay. And actually that in itself is, is quite interesting because we said that the bottom hay stands for this dimension. And what did God do? What is our holy tradition? God spoke the world into existence. God, of course, doesn't have a mouth. He doesn't have a body. God makes bodies. But this is just phrased in a way, we say, that we can try to you know, wrap our mind around a spiritual thought. But let's key in right now with this notion of the Vav being the nose. Because here we have a very deep essential connection now between the Vav of Hashem's name and the Ketoros, and the incense, which we receive by smell. Now, what did we just say? We just said that the one sense that wasn't damaged in the Garden of Eden was the sense of smell. Alright, so now we're going to begin to put together all of these thoughts. Okay? So let's just take two steps backwards. And reset the scene so that we can understand the vast implications of what it is that we just learned. Okay? We said that the highlight of the Yom Kippur service was when the Kayin Gadol, the holiest person in the world, went on Yom Kippur, the holiest time in the world, to the Kodesh Kedoshim, to the Holy of Holies, the holiest place in the world. And all of these forces of Kedusha, energies of Kedusha, all combined at this moment to do what? To offer the incense offering. And that's when, that's when the real essence of Yom Kippur comes out. And the essence of Yom Kippur is atonement. Okay? Now, Now listen to this. Do you know what this is saying? 
in the deepest way, this is explaining the essential truth of what it means to be a human being and the human condition itself. You see, our connection to God has never been broken. It's never been broken. The reason why even the most fundamental turning point in human history, eating from the tree of knowledge, being exiled from the Garden of Eden, all of space sort of collapsing into this materialistic, physicalized form that we're in, where there are all these veils of separation and perception between us and God. This sense of distance that all of us experience, the essence of exile, alienation, existential loneliness, all of this that we experience where we think that it's only me, I've been cut off, there's no meaning behind anything. All of our deepest, worst fears are all based on a lack of understanding. That lack of understanding is that essential connection between us and God was never damaged. It never stopped. That lifeline was never broken. That's what it means that the sense of smell wasn't damaged. Because smell correlates with the nose, which correlates with the vav of yutke vavke, which correlates with the connection between heaven and earth. It was never broken. It was never broken. That's what's being demonstrated in the Holy of Holies with the incense offering. That that connection between us and God was never broken. But it's more than that. It's deeper than that. Because it's telling you about the nature of sin itself, the nature of hate itself. And now, you have to listen very carefully. Because what I'm telling you right now is basic Judaism that everybody holds by. Everybody holds by everything I've been saying. But, but this, you should understand, is not a novel thought. This is an essential thought that you're about to hear. Which is that sin, hate, is extrinsic. It's superficial to the soul. It doesn't penetrate the essence of the soul. It stains us. It does. It impacts us. It does. It silences our ability to hear our own souls. When we make piles of mistakes, when we, when we, when we go against all of the mitzvot, which are all these opportunities to connect, it has an impact on us, a very real spiritual impact on us, because it's so, it covers over the soul. And then we can't hear our own soul speaking to us. But, that covering is just a superficial covering. It doesn't get to the essence of the soul. And the best way I can explain this is through a story that happened to me. It happened to me last year. And I just have to tell you, because when you hear this bit of imagery, if you haven't gotten it yet, you'll get it in a second. I was meeting some people and I don't really remember what the circumstances were. All I remember was that I was running late 
and that I was stressed out to the max. And there was a light, and I was only maybe like seven blocks away at this point, and I just was so anxious to get there as fast as I possibly could. And I'm waiting at this red light, and there are a few cars in front of me, and then just to my right, there's an alley. You know, in Los Angeles, you have a whole system of alleyways, right? So this alleyway would allow me to avoid this light, avoid these cars, and then I can just go onto the main boulevard, and I can gain, I don't know what it was, maybe 30 seconds, a minute at the most, at the most, most. But that, in my frantic state of mind, was, was very important to me. And so, what I did was, I turned into this alley. Now, I have to preface this thought by telling you, I've never driven in Kabul, Afghanistan before. <laughs> so I don't know what the roads are like there. But I can't imagine that they're worse than what this alleyway was. It was strewn with potholes. Now, I have to tell you one more detail. I have a white car. It was strewn with potholes, and each of the potholes was filled with muddy water. <laughs> and I gunned it down this alleyway. And, I mean, there's no roller coaster ride that can compare to what I endured. You know, I, 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 by, all, by all, like, justice, I should have broken the axle of my wheel cages, you know? All I know is that when I got through that exceedingly rocky ride, made way worse by the fact that I was pressing all the way down on the gas pedal, I, and then I got to my appointment. I got out of my car thinking, you know, I think some of the water may have gotten on my car. No, 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 no. My car was covered in muddy water. Like, like in a way that, you know, like when people here in L.A., they do it. I, I imagine they do it in other places. If a car gets a little dirty, they'll write with your finger, wash me, right, on the window or something like that. This was like a hundred times worse than that. I mean, this was like, this was covered in muddy water. A white car. It was disgusting. It was actually disgusting. Like, only a psychopath would actually ride around like this. I mean, that's how bad it was. So, the first thing I did after the meeting was, I drove home, because, I mean, no one in their right mind would drive around like this longer than they absolutely had to. I pulled into my driveway, and then the most amazing thing happened, and this is why I'm telling you this, this story. I got out the garden hose, and I sprayed water on it, and that car was white again in, in, in seconds. In seconds. It transformed from this horror show to like this gleaming white car again. It was amazing. It was, it was almost, I mean, all I can tell you is it was absolutely inspiring. It was like spiritually inspiring. And now, how could that happen? That car looked so terrible. How could that happen? I mean, how does it even work, just the physics of that? And the answer is very straightforward. Because 
all of that mud, all of that dirty water, was just on the surface. It didn't penetrate the essence of the car itself. It was just on the surface. And so when you sprayed water on it, it got rid of all of it. And that's the nature of chet. That's the nature of Yom Kippur, which is compared to a mikvah. The whole day is a mikvah. It's a time-space mikvah. For real. For real. And there are deep Torahs on that. I don't know if we have time to go into them right now. But trust me, the day itself is a mikvah. You're entering into a mikvah. And it washes it all off. It just washes it all off. All a person has to do is to be sincere. And to say, God, you know something? I did this. I did that. I don't want to ever do it again. I don't want to ever do it again. And I love you. And I'm sorry. And I don't want to damage our relationship. And all there is is you, God. I mean, you're the only thing that exists. All there is is you. Why, why don't I want to be on good terms with you? Of course I do. I love you. And you've created me and you've kept me alive. So I guess, for whatever reason, I can't even fathom it. But for, I guess on some level, I matter. Because you made me and you're keeping me alive. So that means on some deep level, I matter. And so, God, I'm reaching out to you and I'm saying to you, I'm sorry, I, 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 I'm going to do better. I promise you I'm going to do better. I promise you I'm going to do better. And then you know what? That's it. That's it. That's it. And God says back to us, I love you so much. I love you so much. You know, Rav Shlomo Karlbach, I heard him say, you know, you know, something so deep but so simple. You know, imagine, uh, imagine a child gets, gets themselves dirty. So if, if it's like a kind of like an angry housekeeper or something like that, they might just look at the child and get so upset and angry and yell at the child. But a parent, oh, come over here and take a washcloth and wash off the child, right? Here, let me get that stain off you. Oh, let me just get that off you. So God is cleansing us in the most loving way. That's Yom Kippur. And now Rabbi Wolfson says something very amazing. He says, there is a book of the Torah that corresponds with the Kodesh Kedoshim, with the Holy of Holies. And you know what that is? That's Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs by Shlomo HaMelech, by King Solomon. Because Rabbi Akiva says all of the books are holy in the Torah. This is Rabbi Akiva speaking. This is in the Mishnah. But Shir Hashirim is the Holy of Holies. So therefore, Rabbi Wilson derives something very intense and beautiful. Since Rabbi Akiva calls Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs, the Holy of Holies, it must correlate with the Holy of Holies in the Holy Temple. And what is that correlation? What is Shir Hashirim? What is the Holy of Holies? That is the paradigm Remember, there are many paradigms in terms of explaining 
our relationship with God. One of them is a parent and a child. One of them is a, a master and a, and, a, and, a, and, a, um, and a servant. One of them is a subject and a king. Right? But what's the deepest of all of the paradigms, says Rabbi Akiva? Two lovers. Two lovers. And that's what's brought out in Shir Hashirim, in the, in the Song of Songs. And that is what's being accessed in the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, which is this husband-wife correlation between the Jewish people and Hashem on this day. So in other words, on the deepest level, you've got two dynamics going on. One dynamic is the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, through the incense service, which Hashem himself commanded us to bring, keep that in mind, the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, demonstrating that this essential connection between us and God has never been broken, right? This is the nose, this is the above, this is the above and below, that that connection has never been broken, right? While God is saying back to us, this is taking place in the Holy of Holies, which is Shira Shirim, which is the song of love between two intimates. So while we're saying the connection has never been broken, God is coming back to us and saying, I love you so much. I'm wiping it all away. I'm washing it all off. That's Yom Kippur. That's the forgiveness. Okay, now I want to return back to a, a question that, that we, can, we can answer right now. Which is, this idea that the Balaturim is, is, is employing a, a very, very novel, um, unique almost, methodology in terms of getting the, the gematria of, of Ketoris, of incense, to equal 613. And again, the way he's doing that is by just taking one of the letters in the word and employing this letter of exchange system known as Atbash to the letter Kuf and turning it into the letter Dalit and then taking the gematria of the letter Dalit, adding it to the other letters and getting 613. And so I would like to just offer this, this explanation that I think on a very, very deep level, the Balaturim is suggesting a formula, a recipe for tshuva, for return, from all of us. Meaning to say, we have a principle, which is that if you open up your soul, if you open up your heart, just a pinpoint's worth, God promises that He'll open up your soul, open up your heart, the expanses of the doors to the Holy Temple. And they were giant, huge doors. So in other words, God says, if you make an opening in your heart, God will expand that opening hugely. Now the Kutzka Rebbe brings out something very, very intense. 
which is, do you know what an opening, a real opening in your heart is? It goes from one side all the way through to the other side. In other words, an opening is not a dent. Do, do you hear the difference? There's a dent and there's an opening. If it's a genuine opening, a through and through opening that goes through, even if it's tiny, through that tiny opening it's going to become huge. That's what we're promised. By flipping over one aspect of your life, it doesn't have to be the entire thing. He's just pointing to one letter. And he's talking about flipping one letter by making one concrete change in your life, but one very real change in your life. A through and through type change, a real change. One change in your life, all of this light can come gushing in. I'll tell you something that happened this year, right before Rosh Hashanah services. It was in the morning, so at the, at, this is after the nighttime service. You know, we have rows of chairs at the Happy Minion and everything like that. And, you know, people dive in and they get up and everything like that. And so, you know, every chair moves, uh, you know, an inch this way or an inch back or two inches up or two inches back. Nothing huge. But when you come in the next morning, it looks like a total mess. Right? There, it, it is. So I was there with one of the guys. We were there before people really started arriving. And I said, let's just take a minute. And, uh, and, do, and do the chairs. And to me, this is such a simple example, but I saw it with my own eyes, so it was so real. We just moved each chair really like an inch. That's all it was. Two inches. Each chair. And next thing we knew, the, the, the lines of the chairs were like almost like military in their exactness. The, and it transformed the entire room. The room went from looking like an utter, unkempt mess to being like, you know, just like totally exact and wonderful. And to me, I thought, wow, like what it was such a powerful visualization for me that little changes, little changes can have such profound effects. I heard I heard a rabbi speak one time. And he said something which I, I, I found almost devastating, but it was very, very simple. He said, you know, so many of us, our spirituality or our spiritual, quote, growth, quote, unquote, takes the form of a Ferris wheel, he said. We just go round and round on the same issues. And it, it creates the illusion of some kind of progress. And by the way, don't get me wrong. Anything anybody does, if they're trying to connect and trying to improve, is absolutely holy and beautiful. I'm not, God forbid, I'm not dismissing anything that anyone's trying to do. But at the same time, we have to have insight into our own process. And if we look at certain focuses of our energy as really just sort of like going round and round on the same issue, how about making a breakthrough? How about making that genuine whole straight through? Like being able to say, you know what? Now I'm actually doing this. I've been dancing around this one for the last ten years. 
the last five years, all year. I've been dancing around this, and because I'm dancing around, it's the, the illusion of movement. How about actually getting off the Ferris wheel, right? And then just really making some progress. So that's, that, that's, that's a bit intense, but, but again, these are all, these are all springboards for us to look into ourselves and ask ourselves these questions so that we have a frame of reference of actually making breakthroughs in our life. And now I just want to just conclude with this one last thought. Maybe two thoughts. Which is, there's a very interesting, very strong gematria, which is Sinai, right? As in Mount Sinai. Sinai, which is where the Torah was given, and God spoke to all of us. Remember, there were approximately two and a half million people present for this revelation. Think about the other religions of the world. They all have an essential prophet, and that prophet says to everyone else, trust me. We had two and a half million people simultaneously getting the word of God. This is why, by the way, Christianity absolutely believes in the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Islam absolutely believes in the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai. You should know that. No one disputes it. They then come up with their own version of history, which, which, what's so ironic, without getting into, you know, the issues right now, but what's so ironic is, if they really say and really believe that the Torah was given at Mount Sinai, which is the foundation of their religion, their religion becomes impossible. (laughs) Because the Torah as it's given at Mount Sinai absolutely forbids any other God or any other version of the presentation of the revelation in any other way than the Torah says. So by endorsing it, they actually completely invalidate their own religion. But that's, an, that's, that's another subject. Here's the more crucial teaching. Sinai is the gematria sulam. Sulam means a ladder. Now this is very deep and works on many, many levels. One is because the Torah which was given at Mount Sinai, Sinai, is this connection, is this bridge between heaven and earth. And of course, all of God looked into the Torah and made the world. So all of reality exists within the parameters of the Torah. So that's one level. Sulam, a ladder being a bridge. But here's the point that I actually want to bring out, which is a ladder works step by step. And this is our progress in our lives. The question isn't, are you capable of doing so much more right now? You know what? Yeah, you are. If I put springs on the bottom of my shoes, I can maybe jump 10 feet. Maybe. But God didn't put springs on the bottom of my shoes. 
He wants to know how far, how high can I jump right now without springs? So when you evaluate your own level, the question is, where are you right now and what is your next step? That's the real question, because God asks us to make this journey from heaven to earth, from earth to heaven, incrementally. That's the path of a human being. Look at the reality of your level, and then ask yourself, what's the next step? And now I'm going to end with this last idea, just very brief, from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which I think just cuts through absolutely everything. He says the following. The question isn't, what level are you on? The question is, in which direction are you moving and with how much momentum? I'll say it again. The question is not, what level are you on? It's, in which direction are you moving and with how much momentum? Because a person can be on a high level. But if they're, in terms of their observance and levels of connection and relationship with the Torah, if they're heading down with a bullet, then, you know, you can be on the highest level you like. But if you're heading down with a bullet, then that to me says way more. Or you can be on a low level, so to speak, or a much lower level, and you're heading up, right, with a bullet. Wow. So that's the real question that all of us have to ask ourselves. Not what level are we on. It's in which direction are we moving and with how much momentum. And we can ask ourselves that question every single moment of every single day. Should be a good, sweet year.